You know, we live in a world that has gotten used to getting what we want when we want it. So our family very recently came out of the cave that we were living in and joined Amazon Prime. <laughs> and so now we are enjoying what it's like to be able to order something and then have it like two days later, right? So uh, my son Nathan, he told me it was okay to tell the story and I'm going to rag on him a little bit this morning. He ordered something about a month ago. He'd saved up his money, wanted to order this helicopter. And it's really pretty cool. So he ordered this helicopter on a Sunday. When he put in his order, it said it will be delivered on Tuesday. So immediately he begins tracking when this thing is actually going to arrive, right? And so he very quickly discovered, I think it was the next day, that it was not going to arrive on Tuesday. It was going to arrive on Wednesday. And you would have thought that we had come to him and said, Nathan, I have bad news for you. You know, the school year is going to be extended through the summer or something like that. I mean, it was just weeping and gnashing of teeth. You would have thought it was like a medical serum to like save someone's life, you know. But it's like, it's not coming until Wednesday. I, how will I survive? And so we've gotten used to, you know, having what we want when we want it. I mean, I grew up, when, in my early years, we did not have a microwave, but then we got a microwave. And it was like the size of a small bus, you know, in our kitchen. Kitchen, but it was amazing because you could take something out of the refrigerator, it was cold, and then just a few minutes later, it's warm. And the plate's not even warm. I mean, it was miraculous. It was like, wow, where, how, where can we go from here? I don't know. And so some of you have never known anything but having a microwave. And then there's, there's like movies. You know, when, when I was a kid, very early on when I was a kid, like you would see a movie in the theater and then you, you will not see that movie again ever. You just, all you have is your memories of the movie. And then VHS came along. And so then it was like, okay, now I can see it again, but I have to go out of my house. I got to go to Blockbuster, kind of drive all the way to get this movie. Now you don't have to go anywhere. You just go to your computer and you can have it in a matter of moments. I mean, there's all of these things that have happened in our world, and some of them are really wonderful. I mean, the movies, yeah, big deal about that. But there are some things that are really wonderful that have sped up our lives. We've, we've come to expect things, what we want, when, when we want it. And a lot of those things are wonderful. But the problem with that is that sometimes we expect what we want when we want it in areas where that just isn't going to happen. And so, for, for example, relationships, you know, the things that we, we struggle with and try to work through in our relationships. We would like for that to, to, you know, go away overnight. We'd like to be able to snap our fingers and have a, a really quick resolution to that, but we discover that that's not the case. And so some of you may have participated in some of the seminars that Pastor Chuck offered over the last number of months that have to do with marriage and parenting and just relationships in general. And so maybe some of you came to those seminars and learned some things, learned some truths and some tips, and, and, and you said, I'm going to go home and practice these because I want our relationships to be better. I want our family to be you know, a better, better place. And so maybe some of you husbands came to one of those seminars and you, you realize, you know, when I come home at the end of the day, it's maybe not the best thing for me to come in the house and immediately begin pointing out all the things that didn't get done that day. How, you know, how come I expected, what, what, what were you doing all day? And what are you wearing? You know, it, it's like maybe you learned that that's not the best thing to do when you come in the door. Maybe it's better to come in the door and engage with your wife. And say, wow, you look, you look great. You, you're a sight for sore eyes. 
So glad to be able to come home to you at the end of my day. How was your day? I mean, you learn some of these things to, to make it a better entrance back into your home. And you think, if I do this once or twice, it's going to gloss over all of the other things. It's going to cause all the other tension that we may have in our relationship to go away. And you discover, lo and behold, no, it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. And, and we can get very frustrated when we realize that we can't have everything we want when we want it. That happens in our relationship with God, too. Right? Um, how many of you, okay, true confessions here this morning, how many of you have ever expected God to do something and he did not do what you expected him to do when you wanted it? Okay, just be honest Admit it. See, this is important for us to do because there may be some people here this morning who are in the middle of something and they think, I'm the only one that that's ever happened to. And you can look around the room and see there's a whole lot of other people and the rest of you, I don't know what's, going, why, what's wrong with your arm that you won't put it up. But a couple of uh, years ago, uh, our family was in a really difficult season. And I was between ministries. I had left a ministry, really believed that that was what God wanted us to do, that, to step away from that ministry, not knowing where we were going to go. And initially when we did that, there, there was this sense of faith and expectation and hope, thinking, God, I, I know that you're a good God. I know if you let us out of this, you're going to lead us into something else. I don't know what it is yet, but you're, you're good. So I have this, this expectation. God, you're so good. I can't wait to see what you have for us. And then months went by, and we kept praying that, and I'm knocking on ministry doors, and either nobody's opening the door, or it opens a crack, and then it slams shut. And then I'm praying God, I can't wait to see what you have for me. You know, have you ever been there? And you're just like, in those times, in those seasons, and what was happening was God was at work and he was, he was crossing our path, beginning to cross our path with the path here at Grace Point, but we didn't know any of that at that point. And it's, it's really easy when you're in those periods of waiting to, to lose hope, to lose faith, and to start to think, is there really any point even to pray anymore? Because I'm praying, but nothing is happening. We're going to look at someone this morning who was in one of those dark seasons of his life when God was not doing what he expected when he expected. And we're going to grapple ourselves with the question, what, how, do we, how do we hold on to our faith when God is not living up to our expectations. Would you take a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 7? If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some white ones there. It's your seat, and uh, Luke 7 is on page 956. Uh, we're in this series called uh, Everyday Jesus, and uh, just watching Jesus interact with people in everyday life, because we learn as he interacts with them in everyday life what we can expect from him in, in our everyday life. And so last week, we saw someone that I consider to be just a great example of faith, the centurion who sent people to Jesus and said, I, I believe that you can heal my servant. And we saw in him a formula, if you will, for faith, that faith equals A plus B, where A equals an attitude of humility, and B equals a, a belief 
that Jesus has authority to do what is needed in that situation. So he, he coupled this attitude of humility with a firm belief that Jesus was able to do something. And Jesus wowed him. I mean, Jesus healed his servant. Matthew, when he told this scene, he said he was healed at that very moment. That's microwave Jesus. We love microwave Jesus. We love it when he does what we want when we want it. But he doesn't always operate that way. So, we're going to start reading in Luke chapter 7, verse 11. This scene, this is not where we're headed here today, but this is kind of a backdrop. This leads us into the the guy that we're going to look at here this morning. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Don't you love that? He started talking immediately. Some people, you know, it's hard to... Make them stop talking. But he, I, I would love to know what he said, but it doesn't tell us. But, so he sat up, began to speak, miraculous, uh, raising back to life. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole country of Judea and all the surrounding country. So Jesus is doing increasingly amazing things in the everyday life of these people. I mean, last week he's he's healing an illness. Today he's raising the dead. I mean, you don't get any more everyday than illness. And unfortunately, death comes to visit us more than once in our lives. So these everyday occurrences, Jesus is greater than these things that we fear These needs that we have. Jesus is greater. And when we see him do these amazing things, it fuels our faith. But he's not doing the same thing for everyone, as we will see going on in verse 18. The disciples of John, we're talking about John the Baptist. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? Or should we look for somebody else? This is a really, really profound question, and to understand how profound it is that John the Baptist would ask this question, we need to understand a little bit more about who John the Baptist is. We need to understand that John's entire life was bound up in foretelling and being a prophet to say that Jesus was, in fact, the one who was to come. And yet here he's questioning it. Let's go back and get just a little bit of background in this because we're, we're, we're in Luke. We're kind of seeing how all these pieces fit together. So let's go back and catch a piece from the beginning of, of Luke chapter 1 and see how John himself had a miraculous birth. So John chapter 1 and uh, verse 13. Um, John himself, not only was Jesus' birth miraculous, 
John the Baptist's birth himself was miraculous. He was born to parents who were barren, who had no children but wanted children. And so his own birth was prophesied. This is no ordinary person. So his father is a priest. He happens to be in the temple doing ministry, and an angel appears to him. Let's actually start in verse 11. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell on him. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." So John has a miraculous birth himself. His purpose has been foretold that he's going to be forerunner to the Messiah. And then if we flip over to Luke chapter 3, we get just a little snapshot of his ministry. So Luke chapter 3 and verse 15 John grows up, he goes out into uh, the wilderness. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's baptizing. And a little snapshot here says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John says that the Messiah is coming, the Christ is coming, the Savior is coming, and he's going to clean house. He's going to be a refiner's fire. He's going to put away everything that's evil. He's going to make this world a a better place. So he's foretelling this to happen. This is the same John, the Baptist, who in the Gospel of John saw Jesus coming from far off and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This John the Baptist now is asking the question, Jesus, are you the one who's to come, or should we look for someone else? Why would he be asking that question? Well, we find out if we read on in Luke chapter 3, verse 18. It says, with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, he was the ruling king who had been reproved by him, by John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, he locked John up in prison. Okay, now, now we start to see what's going on here. Okay. Here's the reason why John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus with a question instead of going himself. He, he's in prison. He doesn't have the freedom to go. And why is he in prison? For doing the right thing. He's, he's bringing God's message to this king who is in sin and an adulterous relationship and has done other evil things and John has confronted him. He's doing God's work but he gets thrown into prison and he says to Jesus, you know, uh, his, his disciples come to him and say, well look, Jesus is doing all this great stuff 
He's healing people. Why, why isn't, what, what's going on? Jesus, um, should I look to you or should I look elsewhere for, for my hope? Jesus, I, I need to know, you know, are, are you going to spring me out of here? Are you going to set me free? I mean, what's, what's happening? So let's see how Jesus responds. Now we're back to Luke 7. So he has sent his disciples, and in verse 20, it says, uh, when the men had come to him, when these disciples had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. See, Jesus doesn't answer directly. He doesn't say, yes, I am the Christ, keep looking to me. He doesn't answer directly. He goes back and appeals to the prophecies that have been made about what the Messiah will do. And he says, look, I'm doing these things. Go back and tell John, I'm fulfilling the prophecies about me. I mean, we just saw that in verse uh, 21. He healed all these people. We just saw that if we back up to that scene before in Nain. He raised the dead. So he says, go to John, tell him, I'm doing these things. I'm carrying out these things. And no doubt when these guys went back to John and told him those things, John probably also thought of another prophecy that he heard Jesus speak and say that he was fulfilling in Luke chapter 4. We'll put this up on the screen for you. When Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord, he's quoting Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Okay, hold on to that phrase. And recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So I'm John, and I'm listening to this report from my disciples, and I'm hearing that Jesus has been healing people Recovery of sight to the blind. That's all well and good, Jesus. What about the proclaim, what about the liberty to the captives part? I'm a captive. I'm in jail. I'm stuck here. I shouldn't be here. I'm here for doing the wrong, for, for doing the right thing. This, this isn't right. Why don't you do something? I think Jesus must have known how hard this was for John because he ends his message back to John with this in verse 23. And this is really kind of our key verse this morning. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word offended in the Greek is scandalizo. So we get our word scandalized from that. So, so what does scandalized mean? Except it's to be shocked, to take offense at something that someone else does. We are scandalized when we see people in positions of influence misuse that influence and do something immoral or improper. That we, we are scandalized. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not scandalized by, by me. Because sometimes I'm going to do things that you may think are improper. Sometimes I'm not going to live up to your expectations. And Jesus says, don't, don't reject me when I don't live up to what you expect. Don't reject Jesus when he doesn't live up to what we expect him 
to do. Don't fall away. Don't lose your faith. See, we reject people who don't live up to what we expect. As a consumer, at least. So, so think about this. If you hire someone to mow your lawn... And at the end of their mowing session, you're seeing all these strips of grass that are missed. And they're just leaving a mess all over the place. I mean, you're going to fire them. They're, they're not living up to what you expect. If you go to a doctor with a medical issue that you have, and they don't even bother to look at your chart, and they don't look you in the eye, and they seem like they're bored, and they can't wait to get on to the next thing, and they're not really giving you a care, you're going to find another doctor. Because they're not living up to what you expect. We need to realize we can't apply the same criteria to God. I mean, first of all, God does care about us consistently. He does love us like no one else ever could. But sometimes he's not going to perform the way we expect him to. And Jesus says, don't give up on me. Don't turn away. Don't be offended when I don't do what you expect. I still am at work. And that's, that's what he sent that's what Jesus sent John's disciples back with the messages. Look at what I am doing. I am still at work. Just because I'm not freeing you right now doesn't mean I'm not at work. See, that's the, that's the danger for, for us when we especially are in a place of pain. Our, our world shrinks and gets really small and we have a hard time seeing past our pain. We have a hard time seeing past the prison bars. And so we don't realize that God is still at work in the lives of other people carrying out his purposes. We want him to do something for me right now. And sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he's operating on a different timetable. And Jesus says, hold on to your faith. Don't reject me. Don't be scandalized when I don't do what you expect me to do. See, while, while John here is, is questioning Jesus' ministry, Jesus goes on to affirm John's ministry. If we read on here, starting verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So Jesus holds John in very high regard. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about John. It's not that he doesn't recognize the importance of his role. Uh, verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And Jesus goes on to say, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and I would say every subsequent generation too, what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. 
The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus is pointing out the fact that the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus are very, very different. They, they operated in different spheres. They, they conducted themselves differently. One of them had this really strange diet and was fasting and stuff. But, but, and, and, and Jesus is going to parties with people. And his point is that people, when, when he talks about this in verse 32, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. Basically saying, we're, we're out of step with what everybody expected of us. As different as we are, you can't please some people at all. And the people of Jesus' day and the people of our day expect that if we're going to play a song, you need to dance to our tune. And Jesus said, we're, we're not here to dance to your tune. I'm not here to dance to your tune, Jesus said. I'm not here to fulfill your expectations of me. Don't let that cause you to fall away. Don't let that make you think I don't care about you and that I'm not fulfilling my work. I'm just not here to do what you want when you want it. I'm just not here to serve your purposes. Jesus did come to serve. We saw that several weeks ago. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he came to serve. He just didn't come to serve our way on our timetable and fulfill all of our expectations. Let's, let's uh, get gritty about this just for a minute, just get, get really honest. Um, you and I live in, breathe the air of, we swim in a tank that is all about focused on getting what we want when we want it. That is not your fault. That's not my fault. We, we kind of got born into this, Okay. So we don't need to beat ourselves up for the fact that we live in a culture that's that way. It's just the way it is. But what we do need to understand is that God does not operate that way. And God does not dance to your tune or my tune or anybody else's. He dances to his tune. And so God, when when I am in pain and I become very Dave-centered, God does not become suddenly Dave-centered. He was not John the Baptist-centered. He's not fill-in-the-blank-centered. He is carrying out his plan on his timetable, and you and I have a choice of how we're going to respond to that. And Jesus appeals to you and me and says, don't reject me when I don't do what you expect. I'm still at work, just not your way. The, the last verse of our passage here this morning is verse 35. Jesus concludes all of this with saying, Wisdom is justified by all her children. So Jesus says, you know, people may criticize me, may criticize John the Baptist for not living up to their expectations. It doesn't matter. Wisdom is proved right by her children. How long does it take for a child to grow up and be seen for what it is? It takes a while. The timetable takes longer than we may want. In the end, we will see that Jesus' way was best. At the time, we might not see, so we must be patient and trust him as we wait. God may not be doing what you want right now when you want it. 
he may not be operating on your timetable. And so if that's the case, then you have a choice. You can reject him. You can be scandalized by that. You can, you can accuse Jesus of not doing the right thing at the right time, and you can turn away from him. Or we can recognize Jesus may not be doing for me what I want him to do right now, but he is still at work. He's at work in other people's lives. He's doing microwave Jesus things in other people's lives right now. He's still on the throne, and he still has all authority and the ability to do what needs to be done. He just may not be dancing to my tune right now, and that's, that's okay. See, John, John got what he was expecting in the end. John was released from prison. It just didn't happen the way he was expecting. John was martyred. John's head was taken off by that Herod that he opposed. And so he was released from captivity, but more than the captivity of a prison, he was released from the captivity of this world, went to be in the presence of God. See, God's going to fulfill all of his promises. It just may not happen the way we want, when we want. He did it for John the Baptist. He, he did it for someone who I consider a, a modern-day hero of the faith who also spent time in jail, in prison. Her name is Corey Ten Boom. If you're not familiar with, with her story, she lived during the Second World War, and her family helped Jews. They, they protected Jews from being arrested by, by Germans, and so uh, eventually they were found out. They, they saved many, many lives, but eventually they were found out, and their entire family was put into the concentration camp at Ravensbrück. Her, her dad died in a concentration camp. Um, and uh, by God's grace, Corey Tamboom and her sister, Betsy, were able to stay together throughout their years at Ravensbrook. But Betsy did not survive the, the concentration camps. And, and she said this. I mean, her story is amazing. And, and I, I can't do any kind of justice to it in these few moments. If you're not familiar with her story, there's a book, The Hiding Place. There's a movie, The Hiding Place. Um, just a phenomenal story of somebody who I look at and I'm like, how in the world, how could you maintain the kind of faith and intimacy and trust in God when you're going through these horrible, horrible circumstances? And yet her sister said this just days before her death. She said to Corey, there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. Now, you know, if I said those words to you, you're like, man, who are you? What does that mean? But, I mean, listen to these words from someone who has gone through just an incredible life that you and I cannot even imagine. There is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. And then she said this, they will listen to us, Corey, because we have been here. Betsy died just days later, but Corey was released from the concentration camp on a clerical error. And just days later, uh, all of the other women her age were exterminated. God released her from captivity. And in 1946, at the age of 53, she began a worldwide ministry that took her to over 60 countries over the next 33 years, gave her the opportunity to share God's love and hope with so many people. She has an incredible story of talking about forgiveness, how to forgive those guards who did such terrible things, how to maintain trust in the midst of these dark times of waiting. And I want to close just with three quotes from her that I think mean so much because of her background, and may they speak to us 
in our times of waiting here today. The first one is this. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And she said, uh, don't bother to give God instructions, just report for duty. (laughs) I love that. And lastly, we have nothing to fear because Jesus is victor and he will never let us down. With Jesus, even in our darkest moments, the best remains and the very best is yet to be. Hear the words of someone who hung on in that time of waiting, did not reject or give up on Jesus when he wasn't doing what she wanted, when she wanted, but she held on for the very best that is yet to be. May we follow in those footsteps. Father, thank you for being consistently loving, consistently kind, consistently powerful. And Lord, forgive us for the moments when we feel like you are not doing what we want when we want it. Lord, we we recognize that we live in a culture where that is the air that we breathe. And, And so, Father, forgive us for thinking that you should operate on our terms as well, that you should dance to our tune. Lord, um, your tune is best. And so keep dancing to your tune as we know you will and help us to fall in line with that. Help us to appreciate it. Help us to maintain our faith and not give up in those times of waiting when you are not operating on our timetable. I pray for the person who's here this morning who's just become very discouraged because you're not showing up the way they expected you to. Lord, I pray that this, this passage, that your Holy Spirit would, would speak to their hearts <coughs> and give them hope in the midst of their waiting. Help them to cling on to Jesus, our cornerstone, even in the midst of our storm, that we may remember that you are still Lord, that you are still loving, and that you will carry out your purpose in your timing and your wisdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.